This week on the Science of Politics, how the plutocrats win from the populist right. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Although the Republican Party has run populist, culturally conservative campaigns, its policymaking has mainly benefited the already well-off. How do they get away with that, especially in a time of rising economic inequality? Today, I talked to Jacob Hacker of Yale University and Paul Pearson of the University of California, Berkeley, about their new book addressing this puzzle, Let Them Eat Tweets. In this conversational edition of the podcast, we also discuss their other books together, Off Center, Winner Take All Politics, and American Amnesia, and I interject more than usual. The Republican Party's economic positioning really is internationally extreme, and Hacker and Pearson fear it is helping undermine U.S. democracy. Their books offer a side of political science that is more cohesive and more activist, and they've been quite prescient. I asked Jacob to start with the big picture takeaways from the new book. Yeah, so the book basically argues that the current Republican Party has been reconstituted over the last generation by rising inequality and a strategy of outrage stoking that the party has adopted uh, to try to attract voters despite that rising inequality. So we call this sort of new party uh, a, a form of plutocratic populism. And, you know, the, the crucial argument we make is that rising inequality has really placed the Republican Party in, in a kind of conservative dilemma. And it's had to respond to that inequality um, because it is basically very closely tied to those at the top of the economic spectrum and, and to corporations. And, but those policies that those, that the, those at the top want aren't very popular. So meanwhile, the parties really had to figure out an electoral strategy for keeping voters who are losing from rising inequality in the fold. And to do that, it's relied a lot on these outrage stoking groups like the NRA. And so the result is plutocratic populism. And we argue that that really emerged before Donald Trump, but that Donald Trump was in a lot of ways a product of this transformation. So Paul, a lot of those themes go back uh, to your book Off Center. Uh, How much has changed in your thinking since then? And how much has changed in the real world since then? Well, I I think we're still at it because uh, we believe that that what we wrote then is is still really relevant to thinking about what's been happening in American politics. I think we were we were right to focus on the transformation of the Republican Party and the interconnection between uh, what was happening to the Republican Party and rising inequality in the United States. And so that you know, I think a lot of the puzzles that we were interested in then um, we still think are are really important ones to focus on. Uh, but I think in part we wrote this book both because the world has changed and because the world has changed in ways that I think reveal have reveal much more clearly some of the things that we missed in that earlier book. Um, the The Republican Party has continued to radicalize. I think even though we were often have been accused of being sort of shrill and uh, alarmist in our views about the party, I don't think actually as we look at the evolution over the last. Uh, almost two decades now since we since we wrote that first book or we're working on that first book. Um, I think, if anything, we've sort of underestimated the course of extremism within the party. And then, of course, the, the other thing that I think we really missed in our earlier work and we've really tried to wrestle with in this book is the centrality of um, racial cleavages and racial resentment uh, as being a critical and increasingly prominent part of the formula through which uh, the Republican Party tries to rule in a changing America. And so we've really, uh, in the in the current book, I think, tried to wrestle with that in a way, partly because with the election of Donald Trump, I think we, uh, like many political analysts, realized that we had underestimated uh, the force of a racialized politics and the ability to run a kind of George Wallace uh, style um, uh, political movement in uh, 21st century America. So, Jacob, you say, I think in the first line, that it's not a book about Trump, uh, but obviously we're all thinking in uh, that context now. So what uh, has uh, Trump changed and in what ways is he just a culmination of the trends you've been tracking in Republican politics? Well, we thought that it was imp- particularly important to say that because of the title of the book, Let Them Eat Tweets, um, because, because Trump's version of outrage stoking through Twitter is distinctive to Trump. But we really want to explain that this 
this story predates Trump. I mean, since the election, there's been this very prominent um, line on what's happening to the Republican Party that basically argues, as I think Paul Ryan put it, you know, the Reagan, the uh, Trump, the Trump GOP or the Trump wing beat the Reagan wing of the GOP. And um, and that and then we discussed that in, with the you know playful title, a very civil war, um, the 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 civil war between the establishment and the Trump wing has turned out to be one, the Republican establishment, the kind of more economically conservative and more money uh, uh, oriented part of the party has gotten so much of what it wants under Trump. So I think Trump was a break from past Republicans in uh, his rhetoric and emphases uh, during the campaign. Um, And indeed, I think he won the nomination in part because his more economically populist stance was popular with um, the white working class voters on which the party had come to increasingly rely um, as this as American society grew more diverse. But um, and, and Republicans were definitely uh, who were in the sort of plutocratic side of the party, the party that part of the party that was tied to corporations and the wealthy. They were very concerned uh, about Trump. They were concerned he was going to lose, but they were also concerned that he might not uh, pursue big tax cuts for the rich or put as much emphasis on you know, massive deregulation as, as they would like. And uh, it turned out they didn't need to be um, concerned. I mean, 2017 was, uh, as uh, Mitch McConnell put it, you know, the best, a great year for conservatives. He said it was the best year for conservatives on all fronts. And so I think that what, what we've decided is that Trump is an intensification of a longstanding set of trends within the Republican Party, both the, the alliance with the plutocrats and the degree to which the party is resorting to outrage stalking, stoking to stay in power. But because he has so intensified both these, you know, he's really pushed, he's really brought out into the open elements of the party machine that weren't there and, uh, and, and maybe brought out, um, I think brought out risks of the, the, the approach um, that weren't as apparent. Um, before his rise. So, Paul, we both love this uh, book, Conservative Parties and the Birth of uh, Democracy, that you all uh, rely upon. And one reading is that these uh, concerns uh, about the Republican Party go back a long uh, way and are are almost universal to conservative parties, that they uh, are always looking to expand their upper-class economic constituency by uh, stoking social and nationalist concerns and that they're always less than thrilled with uh, the democratization uh, or uh, full uh, uh, popularization of of politics. So uh, does that suggest that this isn't unique uh, to to Republicans? And then the second, I guess, version of that is it's a comparison of, of Germany and the UK, and UK conservatives are sort of the success case there. Um, as having built a larger uh, constituency for uh, social and economic conservatism. Uh, So aren't the Republicans at least a little more like the UK case than the German case? Well, they used to be. Um, The question is whether they still are. Um, And let me let me just back up for a second and and talk about Ziblatt's work, um, because, yeah, we are admirers of, of that book, um, as, as well as his broader body of work. Uh, and actually some of the, you know, early seeds of this project came out of a, a period when I was sharing an office with, with Dan in Paris. Um, and, um, I was actually working on some of the stuff for American amnesia and he was working on that conservative parties, uh, book. And we had a lot of conversations. Um, and I think both of us, came away from those conversations a little alarmed at the parallels that we saw, uh, even though we were talking about um, events uh, separated by a century. And even though, of course, some of the events that he was looking at in the German case had led to some um, unbelievably horrific outcomes. So, um, you know, and I, and I think one of the things we try to do in this book without um without expending too many pages on it, because we were trying to produce a book that was pretty compact and focused, was to link some of the discussions about what's going on in the U.S. to to, um, findings in comparative politics, which have really, I think, focused in interesting ways on the relationship between elites and democracy. 
and uh, with with concerns about inequalities of power and also, you know, whether elites can find a home within a democracy, developing democracy that feels comfortable to them. Uh, that, that turns out to be really, really critical. And as Ziblatt argues, a lot of that runs through conservative parties who face this potential dilemma and how they deal with that dilemma it turns out to be really faithful for, for democracy. Now, a critical aspect of the, the argument that he develops there, and we extend on it, and I think also show uh, that there's broader comparative research that points in the same direction, that a lot of how this gets dealt with depends on how much inequality there is, uh, right? The greater the inequality, the more fraught this challenge becomes uh, because elites have more power if things are more unequal, uh, their preferences diverge from those of ordinary citizens to a greater degree. And as a consequence of that, they're actually, you know, they're more uncomfortable with democracy, right? So I think you're right in saying that for much of its history, the Republican Party uh, actually looked more like the what, what we describe as the UK path, right, where they where they moderate on economic issues, at least to a degree, right? And find ways to develop these alternative appeals to voters, but they do so in a way that they're sort of able to control and to keep from getting out of control, from getting out of control. But as inequality grows, that challenge, the conservative dilemma intensifies. Um, the challenge becomes more difficult. And so there has been this journey that we try to chronicle. And, you know, when we were looking at the George W. Bush administration, I think, you know, we were catching you know, catching things at a fairly early stage of this, where um, the party had was just in the process of kind of decisively siding with what we loosely call the plutocrats, you could call economic elites, and we could unpack that a little bit. Um, the full consequences of that, that were not yet emergent. Um, but, um, but when they make that move, it then forces a series of additional choices uh, in, in particular, kind of the, the development of this kind of outrage-based politics, the development of a stronger relationship with with surrogates uh, like the NRA, like the, the Christian right, uh, and and right-wing media, which we think is a very important element of this that we hadn't ex explored enough in our prior work, um, and all of that creates a much more fraught politics, which unfortunately looks less like the UK path or much of the UK path of the Tories uh, and um, more like the path that we see in, in um, less, uh, less promising cases. So Jacob Paul says that the uh, effects of rising inequality are very important uh, for this conservative dilemma, but isn't there a possibility that this is really just more a problem for the left and it doesn't work out as we expect it to? That is, you would think more resources at the top would make class politics and economic concern uh, more important, uh, but most of the comparative research suggests it's at least as likely to help the right uh, and at least as likely to, to move concerns to nationalism and, and ethnocentrism. So is this, uh, does rising inequality have more problems for the right or the, or, or the left, and does it work out as we expect? Well, I think it's important to understand that, first, that the, the increase in inequality in the United States, which has sort of reactivated this historic conservative dilemma, is really without peer in among rich democracies, uh, rich Western democracies. You know, we've seen a doubling of the share of income going to the top 1% over the last generation. And in fact, most of that's gone to the to tiny slices of the top 1%, the top, you know, 0.1%, 0.01%. And then at the same time, uh, we've seen a, a huge decline in the relative standing and indeed absolute standing in many cases of the broad majority of Americans. The bottom half of Americans have seen their national share of national income essentially cut in half. So that's a really big change, right? And I think that when we say you know, what's the effect of inequality? We really want to make sure that we're talking about the, the, the scale of inequality we see in the United States. And I think the standard way in which political scientists want to look at this is at the individual level. And I, and I think you're right. There's a fair amount of evidence that at the individual level, people don't respond to rising inequality in the, in the way that kind of standard political science models might suggest they would. Um, that is, um, they move dramatically left if they're on the losing side of rising inequality. 
But I, I think it's really important to understand that our argument operates at the elite level. It's really a problem for the Republican Party to figure out how it can continue to win elections, to win over voters, when at the same time it's increasingly embracing uh, a group, a tiny group at the top of the economic ladder um, and, uh, and pursuing policies that are not just favorable to those at the top, but increasingly we see they're, they're really unpopular among the rest of Americans and even among Republican voters. So it's, it's that dilemma that really then leads to the increasing emphasis on other dimensions of conflict, uh, particularly on race, uh, identity-based identity uh, appeals, and, and on social, social conservative issues. And, you know, I just, I think it's, it's, it's so common for us to sort of rush out and start interviewing voters or um, looking at public opinion polls that we tend to take the sort of issues that voters prioritize as given. But I think a big part of our argument is that as the Republicans came to lean much more on this kind of outrage stoking, they really helped uh, shift the focus of, of a significant set of voters and to make them more and more see politics as a war um, a war against government, a war against Democrats, a war against elite urban people, and alas, also a struggle against the, the massive demographic changes happening in our society. And that, that's our argument. And, the, and if, you, if, you, if, you, if you look across countries, there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest, and across history, there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest that that's true. And it, and it suggests that, yes, inequality shapes, reshapes politics, and sometimes it reshapes it in ways that lead to more conservative outcomes, but it's a it's as much an elite story as a as a mass story. So, Paul, one thing it's, that's made it easier for Republican elites is that they have all these institutional advantages in the American uh, system that cause them to only need, I guess, about a forty five percent coalition, uh, like the Senate and the Electoral College. They've also been more in, intensely focused on policies that set the rules than than the Democrats. So. How should Democrats think about uh, that that situation? Uh, are these just the rules of the game uh, that that mean that they are going to have to appeal to what is really more of the center right part of the electorate or the more socially concerned part of the electorate, uh, or uh, are they? Is there a path where they're even more focused on changing the rules than the Republicans? That's a great question, Matt. And you know, it's worth it's worth stopping just for a second. Um, to recognize, you know, what a profound development this is in the story of this polity uh, that now um, the rural, you know, the kind of rural favoritism that runs through American institutions um, is now systematically advantages one party over, over the other, right? And it's um, it's the Electoral College. It's the Senate. It even shows up in the House. I, I'm guessing you probably have had Jonathan Rodden on this podcast or at least talked talked about his work. You know, this book, Why Cities Lose, I think is uh, super instructive about. We have available in the archives. Yeah, there you go. I have this little pitch there um, for a wonderful, a wonderful book, which I think is one of the many things that's wonderful about it is the way in which it tries to situate. Uh, an understanding of American politics within a, a broader comparative frame, framing, which I think is enormously illuminating and very unusual among political scientists studying, studying the United States, right? So this is a, a huge change. Like there's always been this rural bias, but it never, you know, fed so clearly into an advantage for a single party. Um, and um, that just has, it has profound effects on the strategies that are available to the party, uh, the role of voters, uh, and so to, to both parties, the role of voters, and so on. And I think you know, we if we wanted to go down this road, we could talk more about you know there's there's an obvious way in which the Republicans are advantaged, right? Because it means, as you say, they just need a 45 percent coalition. You know, and Democrats kind of need something more like a 55 percent coalition. Um, but of course, that also has some potentially adverse effects on a party, right? It can lead them down this extremist path. Uh, and, you know, there's at least a plausible scenario now um, that about the, uh, the Trump campaign, right, that the party has been led down a path um, which makes them extremely vulnerable as they're sort of captured by the more extremist elements within their party. And that, you know, that could go in various ways. 
that we could talk about it. But it's not it's not clear that it's not without a lot of dangers for the long term uh, electoral health of the party that seems to be advantaged by those arrangements. But it is a huge challenge for, for the Democrats. Uh, in some ways, as Jacob suggested, it kind of it, it encourages them to moderate um, institutional reforms. I mean, I. My own view about this is that there are some things that you could do at the margin uh, that would affect this. Uh, there are reforms of the Electoral College. There are uh, the possibilities of adding uh, adding a few states for uh, for voters who currently don't don't get that kind of representation. And I think those kind of initiatives are important. Um, but I think the the basic rural bias that's built in the, into the system is unlikely to be systematically altered, right? You could shift it somewhat, but the Senate is the Senate and it's not going away. Uh, and so I think that means that Democrats um, actually cannot give up on the idea of building um, a, a spatially broad coalition, right? A coalition that can reach into um, these areas of the, of the electorate. I actually think that's healthy for American democracy. I don't think it's healthy for American democracy to have this intense geographic cleavage, uh, but I don't think Democrats are going to reform their way out of, out of that challenge. So Jacob, there are of course also policy specific institutions uh, that might benefit uh, one party or the other, and you all have been leaders in uh, moving political science to think about those those policy domain specific factors. So I was a little surprised uh, that the story was pretty broad success for conservatism um, when the the successes seem pretty uh, specific to tax policy, obviously quite important, but many of the re Republican presidents have dramatically altered tax policy while having more trouble on reducing social programs and, and regulatory uh, pushback. So shouldn't we be looking to things like the reconciliation process in the Senate, issue ownership, where taxes is one of the two domestic issues that Republicans control, or even Grover Norquist's success in the tax pledge in explaining Republican success in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think those are very important. And, and it has been uh, uh, to Republicans' benefit that the tax code has been such a, 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 a capable vehicle, if you will, for redistributing resources to the very top of the, uh, of the income ladder and to corporations. And uh, I, I wouldn't, though, I want to come back to that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss the much broader set of shifts that Republicans have pursued. I, you know, there's much I agree with in Red State Blues, um, your, your wonderful book on the, sort of the limits of some of these strategies at the state level. But I think, as Alex Hurdle Fernandez has nicely shown, one area that um, Republicans have done quite well is in weakening labor unions. And that was true at both the national and um, the state levels. And I think that's a big part of the, the Democrats' problem that, that uh, you mentioned earlier, right? They've lost a major constituency and a major organized force for progressive policies. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as they've lost it, they've, they've ceased um, for a variety of reasons to be able to or be willing to invest in trying to rebuild it. So the decline of labor, I think, is a very big deal. Um, and more generally, right, it's not, you know, they, they came in Republicans. Let's just look at 2017, right? Mitch McConnell said it was the best year for conservatives on all fronts. Um, Charles Koch was almost as was maybe more effusive because I think uh, McConnell said it was the best year in 30 years. And uh, Charles Koch said we did more in the last five years, sort of starting with the Tea Party's rise uh, than in the past 50 years, uh, the prior 50 years. So th they weren't just talking about the $2 trillion in tax cuts, uh, you know, 80% of which went to the top 1% uh, of the permanent tax cuts. They were also talking about massive slashing of regulations, uh, a lot of it through just, um, you know, staffing up uh, administrative agencies with, with, you know, former lobbyists for the regulated industries um, and, uh, and or uh, people who are uh, totally incompetent or ideologically extreme or both. Um, but, but, you know, there's a lot of, of big administrative shifts, deregulatory shifts in climate policies and in health care, um, in labor and consumer protections that, you know, might not survive if there is a shift in administration, but which could, could be made permanent and which have already done a lot of damage. And then lastly, you just don't want to forget um, two, two other things. One, they succeeded 
with with judicial appointments and these pro-business conservative justices who are also socially conservative uh, represent really the kind of plutocratic populist uh, 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 marriage of the party, right? That's one of the things that we find most striking is that the, the one place where you can kind of find policies that really appeal to both the surrogate groups like the NRA and, uh, and the, uh, con- the Christian right and to business groups and really, really rich conservative donors is the Supreme Court and the, and the courts more generally. And they've just become much more important for the right. And, uh, and, they've, and the right has been very successful in, in, in stacking them in their favor. And then there's one thing they didn't do, but they came really close to doing, which was, of course, repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. Their top two legislative priorities, after all, were doing the highly unpopular re- repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act, which they came just a, a vote or two short of getting through, uh, and the um, the even uh, the only slightly less unpopular uh, tax bill, which they managed to pass. So I, I think it's actually... A, a story of a much more substantial change. Um, and I think that taxes are a really big deal um, uh, for the party and for American democracy. And so the fact that they've been the kind of key vehicle has actually been quite beneficial to the party's strategy. So, Paul, those uh, bills were extraordinarily unpopular, uh, but uh, the broader Republican message of, of limited government uh, is a little bit less uh, unpopular. And my personal favorite uh, Pearson and Hacker book, American Amnesia, you uh, cite the long history of uh, elite success in um, uh, moving uh, American opinion uh, against government. So I guess I'm wondering why that didn't show up more in this book. Um, the American uh, public uh, does, the, the, the Republican Party certainly stands out internationally as, as uh, being a far-right economic party, uh, but the, and the American public does not stand out as being um, particularly conservative on policy issues, but it does stand out in these kinds of uh, views of government, of being anti-government, of being uh, not thinking it's government's responsibility to remedy inequality in the abstract, of uh, identifying as uh, conservatives, even when you have uh, liberal uh, policy uh, views, and of believing erroneously in social mobility uh, uh, that it can happen on its own. So I guess I wonder uh, how much of that helps to explain why the Republican Party can get away with these these unpopular policies and why the Democratic Party still faces difficulty even when it enacts policies that the public says they support it. Uh, Well, unsurprisingly, that's another great question. Um, And um, I'm I'm glad you liked American Amnesia. We we like that book uh, too, though. Um, you know, it it arrived um, at the same time that that Donald Trump was uh, was filling up all the the space for conversation. So uh, maybe not so well timed to get get its message across. Um, I I have to say, I mean, first of all, I think in thinking about this idea of um, symbolic conservatism or sort of the you know the the, the broad strength of the conservative message within American political culture that, you know, one has to probably think about elites and the mass public separately uh, about that. I mean, there, there are connections, but I think you'd have somewhat different conversations about, about the two. Um, I think we are pretty skeptical about the idea that, um, that deeply held views among the electorate about these kinds of questions are a very important part of the story. Uh, and I'll say a couple of things about that. I'm not saying that they're, that they're not there and that that's not real what you said, uh, but we don't think it's that important a part of the story. Um, and you know, one way I think to get at that is to note um, how quickly, how quickly conservatives, people who you know, self-styled conservatives in the U.S. Uh, morphed from the Tea Party um, to Trumpism, right? Which, you know, at a level of principle, you know, in in most respects, these are diametrically opposed, right? In terms of the things that they say, you know, nobody is waving their pocket constitutions anymore, right? And, you know, they they can can say that they're um, that they're engaged in a matter of principle, but and and they call it conservatism, but it's radically different, right? To the point where they are, of course, um, over the moon in supporting 
a president who you know, is clearly using whatever executive authority he, he can draw on, no matter how flimsy the justifications for it, to, for example, coerce private companies, right, um, to favor him personally. Right. Which, um, you know, is a long way from the kind of small government, um, you know, market oriented um, ethos that was supposed to supposed to be central to what um, was conservative principle, um, you know, less than a decade ago. So, Jacob, you uh, put you emphasize the role of the plutocrats in the Republican Party, but you don't uh, quite say that they're they're leading it. Sometimes they're they're led along and they go along with it. So I guess who, who is in charge of the Republican Party and, and where should we see something like like Fox News, where obviously we could say uh, Rupert Murdoch is one of the, the, the plutocrats, but. Uh, obviously, the the network has even gone beyond what what he uh, felt comfortable with at times, uh, and it certainly seems like a lot of times uh, the plutocrats are trying to prevent the party from going in in Trump's direction before they end up giving in. So, so who's in charge, and how much does that matter? Well, I mean, it, it would be too too simple to say the plutocrats are in charge, as we put it in the book. You know, they're not. Bond villains in some hidden lair inside a volcano hatching up their nefarious plot to take over the world. Um, and, and it would be too flippant to say nobody is in charge. But in party politics, the way to think about a party, right, is that it's uh, an institution for achieving twin goals, right? It wants to re reshape governance and it wants to um, win elections so it can pursue that larger goal. And um, and so the, 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 the challenge for the Republican Party that, that occurs as inequality skyrockets is basically, do they stay true to those at the top and, and align themselves with um, the, new, the, the, the increasing number of uh, plutocrats um, and the more conservative business organizations that are arising in that context, or do they chart a somewhat more moderate course? And you know the answer turns out to be, um, through Newt Gingrich and George W. Bush, um, it turns out to be aligned with the plutocrats. And the result is, of course, that they're now on the side of a, of a very tiny slice of American society. And, you know, going back to Paul's answer, the kind of symbolic conservatism helps. But we know that <clears throat> that even Republicans don't think that the top priority of for government is cutting taxes on the rich. And, you know, when Republicans tried to run on the 2017 tax cut, um, they quickly discovered that it would be much better for them to resort to outrage stoking around, you know, an immigrant invasion. The question about Fox, I think, really ties nicely to what Paul was saying, because, you know, I don't know exactly what Rupert Murdoch thinks. Um, I think Roger Ailes actually is pretty, pretty loyal, was pretty loyal to the Republican Party. Indeed, uh, he apparently believed uh, in the birtherist lie that, um, that Donald Trump was um, throwing out there. Um, but they're a profit-seeking enterprise. And just like other right-wing media before them and the even more extreme forms that now coexist with them, the idea is to, to, to find a profitable niche, um, use outrage to, you know, gin up um, support um, for the network and for the advertisers. Um, and, you know, whether or not that's uh, serving Republicans, sometimes it and many times it's quite helpful to the party and other times. Uh, it's more problematic. You know, it's it was turned out to be very hard for John Boehner and Paul Ryan to deal with the kind of Fox litmus test approach. And at one point, John Boehner's chief of staff said of, of the right wing machine, you know, we fed the beast that ate us. Um, I think David Frum, who, uh, you know, is, has done a lot to, to sort of chronicle what the kind of craziness in this world um, said, you know, we used to think that Fox News worked for us. And now we've discovered uh, he was, you know, a Bush speechwriter. Now we've discovered we're, we're working for Fox. So, that's that's I think why you shouldn't think of the plutocrats as in charge, but they are getting what they want. And as a result of getting what they want or they're getting a lot of what they want, far more than they could have expected under than they expected under Trump. As a result of getting what they want, then uh, the party is really having it really has no choice but to find another set of appeals. 
So, Paul, your new uh, book uh, pays a lot more attention to racial resentment, like the rest of uh, political science in, in Trump's wake. Um, and that harkens back a little bit to the sort of older theories of why uh, American politics uh, never developed into, into quite the, the class-based coalitions that um, you might uh, expect inequality remedying politics to, to produce. Um, so to what extent is this kind of a, just an inevitable outgrowth of race as a major cleavage in American politics? This for long running uh, cleavage, the South can switch sides uh, and racial resentment can change in its roles, but uh, we can never get out of this sort of basic uh, dilemma. And to what extent is there any way out, especially when Global politics appear, if anything, to be moving in a in a less economically focused direction. Yeah, it's a, um, uh, that's a, that's a huge uh, set of questions. Uh, there's no question, I think, as we as we look at this now, that you can see the the powerful uh, themes of racial division running all through American political history. And you know, again, I think a nice uh, Point in Ziblatt's work, in this case, the uh, the book with Levitsky, How Democracies Die. You know, he points out they don't really have space in that book to explore it because they've got other other things to do. But but he points out rightly, um, I think um, that you know the period that we often um, think about is the period, you know, kind of the golden era, <laughs> you know, of American democracy with bipartisanship and this kind of Madisonian pluralist system really. Uh, working its magic uh, was a period in which um, African Americans were locked out, um, largely locked out of um, that democracy, um, and that when they were fully incorporated, right, uh, or began to be fully incorporated, and this in some ways, you know, repeated the story of the first Reconstruction. So when you get the second Reconstruction, almost immediately. Uh, the political system starts to have trouble, right? And you start to get a move towards this more polarized politics. So it does run very deep. Um, and in fact, if you look beyond the U.S., you know, examples of successful uh, multiracial democracies are pretty hard to find. Um, you know, uh, uh, I think impossible to find um, on, on, in, in a, on a large scale. Right. So that could make you extremely pessimistic about this. Um, I think the the reason for some optimism I, um, and I would, though it's though it's a, a reasoning that is also fraught with difficulties, as we stress in the book, is that the U.S. is undergoing rapid demographic change. Right. Uh, in the in the direction of creating a multiracial society. And so the question is whether or not in a multiracial society, you're going to have a multiracial democracy, right? And by, by multiracial society, I mean one in which there, there is no racial group, which is a majority, right? So we're moving in that direction. The question is whether or not a multiracial democracy will come out of that. And that we think is very much up for grabs. And the fact that we're, that we're on that demographic path is part of the reason why uh, the Republican Party has um, has moved towards this kind of identity politics. It's a really striking thing. You think about what Jacob was saying about uh, you know the alternative paths or the off ramps uh, from uh, the kind of politics that we're witnessing on the right at the moment. You know, as late as two thousand four, two thousand five, uh, you know the the Bush administration and you know Karl Rove is supposedly the political genius behind all of this. They had aspirations of being a majority, you know, a permanent majority party, you know, or a long-term majority party, right? And the, but they saw that as potentially a multiracial path, and they didn't realize, I think, in retrospect, the extent to which both their plutocratic commitments and the development of the surrogate groups that they that they had nurtured and aligned with uh, were actually cutting off the kind of path that Rove um, outlined, you know, in his musings about. Um, you know, how uh, George W. Bush was going to be like McKinley. So, Jacob, you explore a lot on the Republican uh, Party, and it certainly is a puzzle why the Republican Party has remained a far-right economic party and how it succeeds in in doing that. Uh, but another way to put the question is why the Democratic Party has uh, lost to a far-right academic 
uh, Economic Party. Uh, one popular recent explanation is that they they have kind of pursued a social educated cosmopolitanism uh, rather than the economic uh, based interests that that would uh, be able to defeat uh, a far right economic party. Uh, what's what's your view, and what do we gain by looking at the Democrats instead of the Republican view? Yeah, it's a great question, and and you know I I do think it's a it's it's important to consider the the role the Democrats play. It's not a big focus of this book, but as you know, in our in our prior work, we've we've thought much more about the Democrats, particularly in winner take all politics, our 2010 book. And like and like you, um, we really emphasize that the polarization of the parties has been asymmetric. That is to say, the Republicans have moved much farther right than the Democrats have moved left, and. You know, the, one reason for that is that both parties have been affected by the rise of winner-take-all uh, winner economy at the increasing power of the plutocrats. There are, after all, plutocrats in both parties, even if the plutocratic choir sings with a very conservative accent. Um, and, uh, and those plutocrats within the Democratic Party tend to be much more socially liberal than the kinds of, uh, you know, swing voters that Democrats are trying to reach. And they also tend to be really skeptical of some progressive economic policies, particularly regulation and labor unions. Um, and so, as I said earlier, the decline of labor has been embedded in part by the cross pressures that the Democrats are facing. So so I would not want to, to tell a story in which the Democrats are simply bit players. But there is a reason we focus on the Republican Party, and I want to articulate that real quickly before I come back to the Democrats. And that is that the conservative dilemma that we talk about really works through the Republican Party. And they're the party that it most uh, is placed in the deepest sort of uh, bind by the rise of, of extreme inequality. They're the party that really has to reconcile the imbalance between the great economic and political power at the top and the fact that to be a party in a democracy, you have to actually appeal to a lot of people who aren't at the top. And, um, and they're also the ones that have to deal with this growing gap in the preferences of those, between the preferences of those at the top and the preferences of the rest of Americans. And, and you know, the one way they've dealt with it, and I think d Democrats can be rightly faulted for, for not fighting back against this uh, hard enough, early enough, is that they've really thought to rig the game. Um, and we should not forget um, that six of the last presidential elections resulted in a popular vote win for Democrats. But, of course, uh, Democrats did not uh, uh, win the Oval Office in two of those races, 2000 and 2016. And, you know, I do think that uh, social liberalism hurts, uh, can hurt the Democrats. But as you yourself has shown in your, some of your work, um, you know, Americans are becoming more pro more progressive on race and they're becoming more progressive uh, on many of these larger social and cultural issues. Um, the To me, the, the biggest problem that the Democrats face, besides the cross-pressuring that comes from the fact that the super rich are fairly conservative and provide a lot of money to both parties, um, is um, I think the biggest problem is that they have tensions within their own constituencies over, you know, the, the investment in urban areas and the, the role of um, the, the type of opportunity hoarding that we see in suburban areas. So those are challenges for the party, um, but they are, and they reflect in part the rural bias, but they're not, I think, the fundamental cause of the Republican Party's um, radicalization, which is really a result of the of the rise of plutocracy and the degree to which the party has had has turned to outrage stoking as a way of of maintaining its electoral support, even if it caters to uh, a tiny slice of people at the top of the economic ladder. So, Paul, you uh, acquiesced to the Let the Meat Tweets title, uh, even while staying off the platform. So if we have to imagine uh, what the Hacker and Pearson book will be called uh, a few years from now, uh, what what should we expect? Well, I, I have to say, I, I love the title from the beginning. Um, I, it was Jacob's idea, if I'm remembering right. But, um, but I, I, you know, it's a little, um, it's a little in your face, but uh, I think it, it, it conveys a really significant amount of the, the message of the book. And, um, and so actually in your face and conveys the message of the book are pretty, um, are pretty good things. Um, so, 
uh, you know, we'll have to see how things unfold. Um, but at the moment, uh, I, you know, we've been talking about the next project is uh, under the rubric of fault lines. I think that that um, title has been used a few times, so maybe we'll, we will need a different title. But, um, but we're really interested in these um, geographic cleavages, the growth uh, and transformation of these geographic cleavages in the United States. Um, and that we've, t- we've talked about some in, in this podcast, um, but, um, but which, and which Jacob in some ways is alluding to by talking about the tensions within the, the Democratic Party, tensions between um, urban and suburban com- communities that are, that are part of the Democratic coalition, suburban communities becoming increasingly important parts of, of the Democratic co- coalition in part as a backlash to Trump. Um, and, you know, there are just some fascinating issues there that we see is pretty linked to the transformation of the American political economy, not just the growth of inequality, but um, the spatial structure of the American economy. And some of this is covered in, in Rodden's book, um, though he's more, I think, focused on kind of the legacies of the past um, and less on kind of uh, parsing the economy of the present and how it works. But of course, uh, more and more economic activity is concentrated in the knowledge economy in um, uh, urban agglomerations, right, which are uh, quite distinctive in the way that they uh, distribute rewards, the kinds of political coalitions and political cleavages that they generate. And so they're they're just really fascinating and important um, uh, issues, I think, that, that um, political scientists and other social scientists really need to unpack here. We think that that really requires uh, a strong shift within the subfield of studying American politics towards issues of a political economy, which have been way underexplored in our view uh, within the subfield. Uh, Jacob and I are actually working on a big project with a bunch of collaborators to try to develop more of a field of American political economy. Maybe we can come back on your podcast another time and talk about some of that work because we're super excited about it. And I'll just mention, in addition to Rodden's book, I think um, the work of another Berkeley grad and uh, Grossman co-author, Dave Hopkins, this book, Red Fighting Blue, right, which is about um, you know, the interplay between red states and, and blue states and the incentives that exist in these different states, um, given the way that um, American politics is organized spatially, are just are just fascinating and uh, call out for more work. So we're hoping we're hoping to do some of that. Jacob, maybe you can close with a little bit more of a, a pitch for uh, for your uh, way of doing uh, political science and the kind of role of these uh, big picture projects in uh, how our discipline advances and in, informs the, the political conversation. Well, let me first say thank you um, for having us on. It's been a fascinating conversation and, and thank you for your own work. I mean, I think Honestly, we think a big part of what we're doing is leveraging the really good work that's being done by other scholars within the discipline, especially scholars who are focusing on some of these larger questions about the future of American democracy um, and bringing them together in a form that, you know, isn't too <laughs> isn't too political sciencey, uh, is readable and, you know, is is uh, is capable of reaching a somewhat broader audience. But, you know, honestly, we, we, we do feel like we every time we write one of these books, we end up feeling more, much more grateful for the great work that's taking place in the in the discipline, and and hopeful that the kind of work that we draw on will become more prominent within it. You know, I I I, I wanted to I want to say two things about kind of our vision of of political science. One is that we just think that that political science really needs to start with the questions around governance, around how how political actors use the coercive power of government to reshape society in durable ways, or at least attempt to do so. And I think that's, you know, Paul has a great line on this. He says that, you know, a lot of political science sort of sees politics as like that, that Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day, right? Like where you wake up every day and things are the same. Hey, here's another election and here's another big budget fight. And here's another, um, you know, here's another moment when um, voters will have their um, identities reinforced or not. Um, and, and, you know, we, we think that politics is, is not that much like Groundhog Day, that big things happen um, that are, you know, are cumulative and can really change things for the, for the better or, um, alas, for the worse. And so 
We also think this ties political science much more closely to what citizens care about, um, makes it much more a science of, of democracy um, for citizens. And then um, the other thing I want to just say is, is that we wrote this book because we're really, frankly, quite worried uh, about the state of American democracy. And, and our worry isn't just that um, if there are a set of policies that are worsening inequality, though, we don't like that. Uh, it's really that the, the, the Trump presidency rep- and represents a, you know, an embodiment and, culmin- and, and perhaps and hopefully culmination of a transformation of the GOP that is, poses a pretty profound threat to our democratic institutions. It poses both the kind of well-known authoritarian threat if, you know, in the person of Donald Trump, but it also poses what we call a counter-majoritarian threat, the sort of desire uh, for a minority uh, to, to lock in priorities that are unpopular and, and not supported by a majority. And, you know, we all know that our political system was designed to make it hard for majorities to do what they want. But what we're trying to show in this book is that our political system is now too often making it possible for minorities to do things that are both unpopular and harmful. And you can see that in the, you know, the, the way the Supreme Court has become such a central arbiter of both the distribution of economic rewards and um, the distribution of political power in our society. We can see it in the degree to which this rural bias has been weaponized. Um, and we can see it in the, in the degree to which, you know, voters themselves are, you know, are being sidelined in too many parts of our country. So we want a vigorous two-party politics with a strong conservative party and a strong uh, progressive or liberal party. Um, that's not what we have right now. And that's why we wrote the book. Well, there's a lot more to learn, but that's where we'll have to leave it. So thanks to Paul Pearson and Jacob Hacker for joining me. Please check out Let Them Eat Tweets and then join us again next time on the Science of Politics. 